This morning, we look at the biblical church, her structure, the structure of the church. In other words, simply said, what is the church? What does it look like? Let's talk very briefly about what the church is not. The church is not a club. It's not a club. It's not a club with which you purchase a membership and expect to gain something uh, as a result of what you have paid. You've, you've paid your dues, and therefore you expect excellent customer service. They better treat me well. Now, let me say on that note, that by no means, that fact that I just stated, by no means justifies the ability of those in Christian leadership to treat people poorly. Some have said, you know, we've got a lot to learn from Verizon and Starbucks, these companies who really do well at customer service. And I would say, well, I'm not going to make a stand on that, but what I'd rather say is that they've got a lot to learn from the Scripture. And if they're doing anything right, it happens to be an overlap with what the Bible says we are to be doing with regard to kindness. So when I talked earlier about the fact that we are not into church growth, we're not into drawing people in by the flesh, doing what makes them feel better in a fleshly sense, I'm by no means saying when someone walks in and visits for the first time, hey, just so you know, we're not into church growth. You take one of the hard chairs. No, no, that would violate what we know the Bible says about what it means to be a believer. You and I are to sacrifice for believers, but also for unbelievers. Ministry to other people, not customer service. You say, well, what's the difference? When it comes to ministry, we're simply looking at what the Bible says with regard to what Christ has done for us and what he has called us to do in light of that. One of my favorite passages in this regard is Colossians 3, beginning with verse 12. Beloved, you who are holy and chosen, put on a heart of compassion. And then Paul goes on to speak of love and forgiveness. We are to forgive others as God has forgiven us. And I remember years ago, some some men trying to develop a a movement by saying you can't forgive someone until they ask for forgiveness. No, no, no. (laughs) That violates everything we know about God's willingness to forgive. God forgives the unforgivable. So you and I are to forgive the unforgivable. We are to love the unlovable. We are to be kind to the unkind. We are to be gracious to the non-gracious. And that is how people are one. That is how people are one to Christ. They see Him in us as we reflect Him, as we grow in His image. What then is customer service? Nothing wrong with this in the secular venue, but I believe customer service is simply the idea that the better we treat people, the more money we make. It's not wrong, but it's not the church. So you want to think, and I want to think biblically about this, not pragmatically or what works, so to speak. This morning we want to examine what God says about his church. Here's your so that statement. It's not in your bulletin if you want to take this down. We want to examine what God says about his church. That's what we're doing this morning. It's a doctrinal study. The rest of the so that statement goes like this. We want to examine what God says about his church so that we may enjoy and be faithful to him and his church. We want to enjoy the church, right? The church experience ought not to be a drudgerous experience. It ought not to be discouraging and depressing. I mean, pervasively, certainly things are going to happen that are discouraging. But your involvement with the church should be filled with joy. I mean, you should love the people, not just sitting next to you, but in the church. The the church is my joy. I, I don't know. I didn't used to be that way. I think the difference is I got saved. Pretty sure that's what happened. I mean, yes, I'm sure that happened. That's not what I'm, I'm not guessing about that. But I am saying that there was, a, there was a time where I thought I was saved and I didn't like people. You can't really, you know, I don't know if you know this. You can't be a pastor if you don't like people. I love people. My point is that the love that the Lord produces in us for each other has less to do with our lovability than it does to do with Christ's love for us. So it's not like we just kind of grin and bear it and say nice things and can't wait to get out of the room and away from that person. It is that we really love that person, and so we invest our life in that 
person, trusting not so much that the Lord would make that person lovable, but that the Lord would help us to be faithful, that we would be used for his glory. This idea that we're talking about at this point, the structure of the church, is really rooted in what we've talked about the last two weeks. It's very much rooted in the sovereignty of the head of the church and the submission of the body. In a nutshell, I mean, I got a lot to say this morning about this, but in a nutshell, when we talk about the structure, we're talking about the head and the body. That's what we're talking about. You say, well, how is that supposed to be organized? Well, let me say from the beginning, the church is not an organization. Nothing wrong with being organized. I love being organized. I got my garage cleaned out this week. Wow, do I feel like a new man. Nothing wrong with being organized, and I think even in the church, we want to be organized, but things are going to change. So it's, you know, it's not the best thing for you to be super picky about whether or not things are organized exactly the way you would organize them. We want to be organized because we want to be efficient. That's why we use software. That's why we're going to give you membership applications to fill out so that we can have excellent and accurate information on you so we can know how best to serve you and then sell it to uh, Verizon. I'm kidding. <laughs> so I'll save you a little bit of ink, right? The church is... I'm going to give you five things the church is. The church is, you can number these if you want. I guess I'll go ahead and do that for you. Number one, the church is a building under construction by its master builder. The church is a building under construction by its master builder. I don't have to explain this. We've been through this in 1 Peter just a few weeks ago. Let me read you the passage. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Let me stop there for a second and say this. You know somebody who, who doesn't know the Lord and not part of the building that the church is, that the master builder is constructing? What do you say to that person? You know, we want to sort out whether or not you're of the elect. No, that's not helpful. You want to say, you want to, say to that person, if you believe in him, you will not be disappointed. Because that's true. And that's what you want. You want that person to be part of this building. You want him to be devoted to that precious stone. You want her to be part of this building that's being built up, that is glorifying to Christ, that the master builder is, in fact, doing. As I said in verse 6, For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. See, that's what you want to deal with. You know somebody who's rejecting Christ, somebody who's playing church? but rejecting Christ, you know the difference. You did it, probably, sometime in the past. I certainly did. Maybe you didn't, but I did, and you know somebody who has. You can minister to someone who's doing that, not by browbeating them, but by saying to them, believe in him who will not disappoint you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What do you do when your kids need mercy? Let me answer that for you. When you're mindful of God's mercy for you, you are merciful to them. And when you're bent on their conduct, you're not. How do I know that? Because that's me too. It's just kind of how we are. 
But if you have received mercy and you are of the people of God, you are a holy nation, you are a people for God's own possession, you want to proclaim his excellencies. And that's not just on Sunday morning when we sing wonderful, rich theological songs together. It's how you treat people. Right? The church is a building under construction by its master builder. So the, the Lord is building the building, but it's under construction, and the expectation is that there would be work amongst those who are part of that building. That, that would be being done within the building. The work is not complete. Number two, the church is an eternal family whose father is finding and affirming its members. The church is an eternal family whose father is finding and affirming its members. Ephesians 1, verse 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So it begins with what we would commonly refer to as a, a doxology, that which declares the glory of the Father. Verse 4, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This really puts a nail in the coffin of Arminianism where there are those who want to think that God somehow looked down the corridors of time and saw what man would do. Predestination, foreknowledge, always has to do with people, not conduct, not what people do, but people. God determined in eternity past whom he would save, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. He's speaking specifically to the individuals within the church. This is not about an application to a broad group of people alone. It is a broad group of people who are particular people, individuals within the church, those whom God chose in eternity past and those for whom Christ died. Why? That we would be holy and blameless before him. And a good starting place for determining whether or not someone is growing spiritually and being conformed to the image of Christ and therefore proving that they are of the elect is a passion for holiness and blamelessness, not just in the public venue. But there is a deep personal interest in purity. So he's not just good at making people think he's a wonderful guy or gal. But there is a deep personal interest in the privacy of his own life, the privacy of his own mind in biblical evangelism, in biblical edification, in biblical exaltation. And that's what he talks about. That's what he's consumed with. He has a love for the holiness of God who called him by saying, Be holy, for I am holy. And the fact that he's a nice guy really doesn't mean anything. But if he has a passion for holiness, he's showing himself to be what the passage goes on to show to us just before verse 5, at the end of verse 4. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. You say, what's God's motive? There it is. This is the absolute most pinpointed expression of why God determined to do what he determined to do. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't narrative texts in the Old Testament. There certainly are that give us some insight into God's heart in his sovereignty, how he in his perfect wisdom determined what he would do. But this says it in a very encapsulated way. It is because it's his will. Uh, another way to say it would be it's because of who he is. God's will is a reflection of who he is. He does what is a byproduct of his character. So it's the kindness of his will. You say it doesn't sound very kind. It sounds too particular. It sounds as if he plays favorites. We showed you in 1 Peter that the Bible says he does not play favorites. But the very fact that anyone would go to hell is that person's fault. Why? They've rejected the kindness of Christ. So, God in his 
kindness reveals to us here the church is a family that he predestined in eternity past. He predestined to adopt some as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. To what? To the praise of his glory of grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And so it's about grace. And so what do we do with grace? We stand thankful, not pridefully committed to saying, I chose Christ. We stand humbled because it's grace. And any other declaration is a dismissal of God's grace. And it's an insult to the kind intention of his will. And by the way, it's works salvation if you're not careful. And what does that result in? It works in manipulation of other people to get them to do the same thing. And you've seen it. Number three, the church is an eternal flock. A sheepfold, if you want to add that. The church is an eternal flock whose shepherd finds and tends his sheep. I read to you earlier from John 10, verse 26. Let me read you that point one more time. The church is an eternal flock whose shepherd finds and tends his sheep. In John 10, verse 26, But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand see this is the kind-hearted expression of a shepherd who loves his sheep he protects them and he will not allow anyone to snatch them out of his hand it's a bold decree it can't happen it won't happen there's no there's absolutely no possibility if you're in Christ You've been given eternal life. Eternal life. Not your best life now, but eternal life. How, though, does the chief shepherd care for his sheep? What's the structure? What does it look like? 1 Peter 5, verse 1. 1 Peter 5, verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. We don't fully understand God's design for things, but in many, many cases we see how they unfold. He's given his word with clarity. It's not a comprehensive expression of God's character in all things but it is an accurate expression of God's character and all things that it addresses. So what we have is right, and we can trust it. But we don't know how God has determined what he will do personally in different people's lives with regard to the development of the church. So I, as a young man, was not thinking, I can't wait to pastor a church. I mean, I was like any kid. I wanted, you know, baseball, right? I'll be a fireman or, you know, whatever, something. I'll climb buildings and actually did that for a while. But I was never dreaming about the idea of being involved in the church in such a way that it would matter or anyone would care. And then I had my first exposure to the church in a setting that was distinctly unbiblical and yet pretentiously convincing that it was biblical. Nice red carpet. Nice cross in the center of the, the background. You know, two very nice pulpits, one on the right, one on the left. Some of you know what kind of church I'm talking about. Unfortunately, uh, this church that had lots of rich, deep, Christ-magnifying theological history 
in its denomination had diverted from that. And so there was absolutely no interest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Was there an interest in the word of God? Well, yeah, you kind of have to have that to play it off. And so there was enough interest in that that people thought, a lot of people thought that it must be what the church is. And it wasn't. And it was very disillusioning for me. And then I went away to play football at college and and during my time there, I heard the gospel, and there wasn't much clarity with regard to the church, and there wasn't much clarity with regard to solid theology, but I heard the gospel, and the Spirit of God, I believe, began to open my eyes, and I don't know exactly when that happened. But somewhere along the way, the Lord produced in me an unquenchable passion for shepherding the flock. And I don't ever think about not doing it. I never, it never crosses my mind that maybe I want to do something else. I only want to shepherd the flock of God. I only want my children to be good churchmen. That, that sounds weird in certain contexts, but I want my boys to not just love Jesus, have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and read your Bible and be nice to people, I want my boys to be humble. I want them to be slaves of Jesus Christ, and I want them to be the happiest people on the planet, serving Him. And so I'm, I hope, growing in my own willingness to do that, but also in my ability to cultivate that in others. And one of the best things that I can do for you is to say to you, you must hold me accountable to what this passage says. It is your place to ensure that not just I, but the other eight men who shepherd the flock in our church are above reproach. That there would be a willingness to call us to be above reproach, to be accountable, that other men and other women would be becoming above reproach as well so that as the church grows, as the church expands numerically, if that's God's design, then the numbers of those who are in fact above reproach are also growing numerically so that we can manage the church, to use Paul's terminology in 1 Timothy 3. But here, what Peter is saying is certainly by no mistake, it's not something he just threw in there, it's toward the end of the letter. He's talking about the fact that he has given a strong word to those who lead the church. He as an elder, to them as fellow elders, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. And so there is a high foundation upon which he then says to them, shepherd the flock of God among you. And friends, it's no secret that too many churches, too many church leaders are offering what many times a secular organization does by, hey, we'll give you $100 if you start a checking account with us. Why don't they offer that to their membership? Because they want more members. I'm talking about banks right now, not churches. <laughs> Maybe there are churches that do that. But my point is that that's very similar to what a lot of churches do. They're all focused on doing everything they can to win people to the church rather than developing the church so that the church is a sound testimony, so that the church makes the gospel believable, so that the surrounding community, the neighborhood, the family, the extended family, the workplace, that those people would look on and say, that's different. It's not what I've been exposed to with public religion. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory, and then he says this, very important. You younger men, who's he talking to? He's talking to younger men in the church who see the example of the older men who are elders, men who are above reproach, men who are shepherds. And so he says to them, you who are younger, but looking on, likewise, be subject to your elders. 
And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. In fact, elders, be humble. Young men, be humble. It's not just, you know, young men, be humble because the elders are the smart guys. Everybody be humble. Everybody consider others to be more important than self. But young men who aspire to Christian leadership, they, they need for that to be cultivated by other men. Relationships are important for that. God is opposed to the proud. Young men are proud. I was talking to somebody this morning about Thoughts for Young Men by J.C. Ryle. Wonderful, wonderful book. Tremendous book. Good for anybody, whether you're a young man or, or not. But he says, why young men? Why do, I, why, do, why do we title this young men? Because young men seem to have a greater propensity for pride. Young men seem to have a greater belief that they somehow are great. And that gets fed by other People who look on. Young men have, in one sense, greater power than women do. Physically, they're stronger. Uh, they can walk taller. They can demand uh, submission. And so, therefore, that creates pride. And really, ultimately, it's not more power. But he thinks it is many times. Young men think it is. I was that way for sure. So, Peter speaks directly to young men be subject to the elders. You know, don't play the game of, you know, what has commonly been referred to as Lone Ranger Christianity. You know, I'm a Christian. I, I got this. I'll do this on my own. It's, not, it's just not existent in the Bible, and yet there are those who fight discipleship. They want nothing to do with it. And yet everything in the Scripture leads to relationships. You know, Jesus was, he poured himself, himself physically, literally, into people's lives. And that's how they grew the shepherd, uh, though, is the, the vessel by which the flock grows. How does God tend the flock? He uses earthly shepherds. That's the design. That's why in our church we put tremendous emphasis, not simply on cultivating um, spiritual leadership. That's a good term. We like that, right? But not just spiritual leadership. It's very generic. But specifically, church shepherds. Those who will lead the flock above reproach, leading others into emulating them as they emulate Jesus Christ. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, imitate me as I imitate the Lord. You say, well, what exactly does this look like? Well, it looks different in different venues, but in our church, it looks like iron men. You say, is that like the ultimate discipleship? No, it's the beginning that's the gateway. That's the entrance. For women, it's wow. For the younger folks, it's what we, we're calling young theologians. And I, I think that new name is right around the corner. I forget what it is. But anyway, it's a better name. So we're doing what we believe the Bible has called us to do to ensure that we are shepherding the flock of God among us. And the person who says, you know, I don't want that, you're not letting the flock be shepherded. Because if you're part of the flock then you have a responsibility to subject yourself to the leadership who says we're going to be faithful to the Scripture and shepherd the flock. You say, I don't have time for that. Then you're wasting time doing something else. You say, don't you say that because what I'm doing is very important. That's why we provide four times during the week, four different time slots. And if you need a new time slot, we'll make a new time slot. But you can't be unshepherded. This is how we know to do it, the way we're doing it. So again, I say with great joy that this is the hallmark of our church. It's a joy for me to talk about this. In Colossians 1, Paul gives his heart on this. Colossians 1, 28, we proclaim him. We proclaim Christ. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we might present every man complete in Christ. What is that? Mature? Looking less like self and more like Christ? Spiritual maturity is actually happening. I can attest to that in, in dozens of your lives as we've had interaction. You know, if we were to have a recording of a conversation within the last two months and compare that to a conversation two years ago, then we would all listen to that and say, yeah, that's, that's more mature. 
The Lord's doing that work through the shepherding process. And here's what Paul says about that further in verse 29 of Colossians 1. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. I labor, I strive, I agonize. I work hard to know what the scripture says. I'm I'm speaking as if I'm Paul. This is what Paul would say to us. This is what Paul does say to us. For this purpose. What purpose? The maturity of the flock. I mean, think, think for a minute. Just settle in for a moment to your experience. Kind of recall those ecclesiological experiences you've had. Maybe you've had a long stay at a particular church. Ask yourself the question, what was the purpose of the staff? What was the design? What was the, what was the greater interest? Was it the glory of Christ through the shepherding of the flock, the edification of the saints, and the evangelism of the lost? Or, or was it always about you getting more people there? What you must hold your leadership accountable to is shepherding the flock for Christ's glory and to know that they strive and work hard. Speaking to Rick, shepherds the North Ukiper group just this last week. We're talking about all that he does in our church, all he's responsible for. He, as many men, many of you, are responsible for a number of things. And he said, I'm looking forward to the time where I can spend more time studying. And so we're, we're talking about as other men rise to the occasion in kind of a deacon sense to take on more responsibilities, he then can delegate those things and do what? Spend more time in the Word. Because that's what a shepherd does. And that's why in Acts 6, you see that development of Stephen and others who would be deacons. Why? So that the elders could be devoted to the ministry of the Word and prayer. And that's what a shepherd does. It doesn't mean that he doesn't serve. It doesn't mean that he won't come over and install your ceiling fan if you need that. He will probably do something like that. But by and large, those things are given to deacons so that those who shepherd the flock have time. They have time to be in the Word and to be in prayer so that they can labor and strive that God would work mightily in them. And He will. if They will be faithful. Number four. Number four, the church is a living organism in need of cultivation and pruning, and it is expected to grow. The church is a living organism in need of cultivation and pruning. And it is expected to grow. In Matthew 13, verse 23, the Lord has walked those listening to him through the parable of the soils. So he's explaining that the seed has fallen on rocky ground in some cases. It's been choked out. It's been misused, abused, ignored. But he says here, In verse 23. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. I'll give you the point again, point four. The church is a living organism in need of cultivation and pruning and it is expected to grow it's expected to bear fruit verse 24 in Matthew 13 says Jesus presented another parable to them saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field but while his men were sleeping his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? Interesting response. You might might think the response would be, Yeah. I mean, let's get that taken care of right away. Let's get the tares among the wheat out because that's obviously a problem. It's not the response. The answer is no. He said no. Don't gather them up. 
For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. You see what's going on here? You got brand new believers and you got false believers. And how do you tell the difference? It's really, really hard and maybe impossible in the beginning. So what do you do? You wait. You wait for the harvest. You wait to see what happens. It's important to be slow and patient with regard to that. Verse 30, allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So there does come a time where there needs to be a separation between those who are of the Lord and those who are not, but it's not always right now. In verse 40 of Matthew 13, so just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom and stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is very serious. But what it implies, what it necessitates, is a need to know who the wheat are than who the tares are. The wheat will grow, but the tares will grow. And eventually in their growth, you will see the contrast. And eventually the tares have to be dealt with out of protection of the wheat. In John 15, verse 1, to further speak of this idea that the church is a living organism, it's in need of care, cultivation. I am the true vine, John 15, 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Now, this speaks of the individual, but it's symbolic of the work that takes place in the church. Verse 6 says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Well, that would be unkind if we were to address the fact that some people claim to know Christ, but they are not acting like it. They show no interest in Christ's honor, but they come to church. If I were to ask for a show of hands, I expect I would probably see that most of you would say, Yeah, I've been in a situation like that. I grew up in a situation like that. There was no church discipline. There was no effort for the sake of the unbeliever to help them understand that they're an unbeliever. There was only a continued stamp of approval. Look at the things you're doing. Isn't it great? John 15, 8 says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. How is a man, how is a woman, how is a young person proven to be a disciple? He bears fruit. And again, let me say it again. It, we're not talking about the idea that he's a nice guy and he's respectful to adults. He bears fruit. He's involved in people's lives. And there is a deep interest in the glory of Jesus Christ, the development of the church, and the evangelism of the lost in that person's heart. That's the fruit. Galatians 5.22, you know this well. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. The person who lives by the Spirit, walks by the Spirit, he has fruit. What is that fruit? Well, in this case, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness gentleness, self-control. And there's a consistent upward movement on the graph of his life toward those things. And there's a consistent upward movement in the graph of his life with regard to repenting of the absence of those things. He addresses it. He doesn't sweep it under the rug and just say, well, you know, people will get over it. You know, enough water goes under the bridge. People forget how I acted that day, what I did, how I lived my life. He addresses it. He addresses the dead fruit. And he replaces it with good fruit. So the church is a living organism in need of cultivation and pruning. And it is expected to grow. It is expected to bear fruit. 
Number five, the church is a body whose head demands bodily interdependence. This is maybe the most effective of all the metaphors in the Bible with regard to the church. There are some 12 to 14 metaphors. I've given you a few. But I believe this is uh, the easiest for us to kind of get our arms around because we all have a body. You know how the body works and you know what it's like when it doesn't work. The church is a body whose head demands bodily interdependence. It demands that we serve each other. And not just an occasional service, but that we're enmeshed in each other's lives. And some have said, and I don't think this is the main point, but it's helpful. Some have said, you're going to be spending eternity with these people. You really need to develop a deep love for them in the meantime. It's not the greater issue. The greater issue is that you're called in this lifetime to prove your eternal life by investing in people. Being willing to serve in a number of capacities. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. For even as the body is one, and yet many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also in Christ. Now, just rest for a moment in the essence of that metaphor. And yes, think of your own body. Your body is many members, but one body. And it is a functioning body because its members do what they're supposed to do. And you say, well, mine aren't doing that so much anymore. Well, me too. I know what what that's like. But the body that works properly, and by the way, the Christian body doesn't ever work in perfect function, perfect working order, because there is yet the flesh, and there are tares among the wheat, and so these issues have to be addressed. But the point is that the body does function in many senses in the same way that your body functions when it functions well enough to be doing something productive. And you understand that because you live with your body all the time. And you know how difficult it is when things become painful. Paul goes on in verse 14, For the body is not one member but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And some might say, well, you know, I'm not really good at all that stuff. Neither was anybody else when it was brand new. But the development of your spiritual gifts is a necessity. In 1 Peter 4, verse 10. You and I are told that you have a spiritual gift. You might have one, you might have a few. Your spiritual gift fingerprint is different from everybody else who has ever lived. But you have some combination of spiritual gifts as listed for us in 1 Corinthians and Romans 12, Ephesians 4. But you are responsible to determine your giftedness, but not alone. There have been those who have erroneously determined, I have this gift because they took some test with 140 questions and uh, the test showed, well, this is your giftedness and maybe that's right, but maybe it's wrong. But there's a more natural biblical way to approach that. Pray, read the scripture, see what the gifts are, experiment, ask leadership to kind of help pave the way for you to get involved in serving in a way that you think you would like to serve. But this is necessary, and it's beautiful. And again, I I take great joy in telling you that you as a church create much joy for me because of your faithful hunger and desire to serve the body with your spiritual gifts. You are called to be interdependent. As I prayed earlier, you are called to weep with one another, to rejoice with one another to truly be invested in each other's lives. 
as I mentioned from Colossians 2, starting with verse 19, Paul speaks of those holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. Paul goes on to say, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. In other words, man-made traditions, man-made theology, a system that fits, a system that anybody, believer or not, can say, oh yeah, I totally get that. Man-made systems. Why do we go back to those things that are clearly of the world when we have been given new life in Christ? Paul goes on to say in verse 23, These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Well, you see the problem with a man-made structure. And I think you see the drastic distinction between that and that which God has designed. The one with the consumer mindset who comes to the church and says, I'd like to be a part of that congregation. I'd like that club. We've looked at all these different churches, and we like the stuff that this one has to offer. Now, friends, I'm not at all being critical of the discernment necessary to when a person is looking for the right church, thinking through the issues and determining whether or not a church is a place of faithful devotion to the Word of God and to the gospel, you must do that. But the family who's doing everything they possibly can to find out which church has the best youth program, right? Meaning that which is the most fun and offers the most activities. And the one that the kids come home saying, oh, it was so cool. Let me tell you about the song we sang. And it's some taking of a secular song and twisting it down and sanctifying it and putting Jesus' name on it. And they think that's cool. It's very common. But this is the appeal to the flesh, a man-made system that appeals to man's thinking that he somehow can choose Christ, that he somehow has the ability to bring himself to Christ, makes him feel better about himself rather than promoting and displaying the sovereign God of the Scripture who grants grace to all who will believe. See, there's a huge difference. One is biblical and one's not. When a man approaches the church with a consumer mindset, he, by the flesh, attempts to bring himself to God by his own making, the God of his own making, he chooses a church on his own terms. He develops a theology run through the grid of his own system, choosing to reject everything that doesn't fit what he has previously believed and only embrace the things that make him feel better about what he has always believed. It's a man-made consumer mindset with regard to the church. It's all done in the flesh, so whatever takes place in his life, he demands credit for. He doesn't give credit to God. He doesn't give glory to God for it. And by the way, he will demand the same flesh-driven conduct from others, even though he himself is hiding his inability to gain victory over personal, private, hidden sin, in particular, the legalism of pretending to be more spiritual than he really is. This is not at all unusual. So what do the members of this body do? I'll give that to you next week. Lord, what a privilege. What a privilege that you, in your grace have called us unto this building which you, being the master builder, continue to construct. You've called us to this eternal family. You've adopted us as sons and daughters unto your spiritual eternal family, and so you are our Father. 
You've called us into this eternal flock. We who were and are your sheep heard your son's voice. And we followed him. We thank you that you've called us to this living organism that is in need of cultivation and pruning and that it is expected to grow and you've given us the blessing of being involved in that. And Lord, we also thank you for this body, the universal body of Christ of which we are a part, whether or not in some folks' lives they have found that local church. If someone is in Christ, he is a part, a member of the universal body. But you have called every believer to participate faithfully, sacrificially, voluntarily, joyously in a local church. Not the church hop, not to bounce from church to church, but to take the time to exercise the discernment to know where you would use that individual most as one of the building blocks in the house that you are building. One who would bear fruit amongst those who are bearing fruit. One who would be a ligament, a part, a tendon, faithful in such a way that it results in the greater proper working order of the body. And so, Lord, we give you great thanks this morning that you've blessed us in ways we might not ever have imagined at the Anchor Bible Church. That we by no means are setting trends or setting standards but you in your grace have given us the privilege to be part of a faithful flock. And so we would ask today, Lord, that you would give us greater passion and greater devotion to do what would honor you. And we ask that the church would be known, therefore, as those who love one another, that we would be known by our love one for another. And we ask all these things in Christ's name.